Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Luke Glanville about his new book, Sharing Responsibility, The History and Future of Protection from Atrocities, published by Princeton University Press in May of this year. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. Can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself and who has influenced your thinking on human protection? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I grew up in and have always lived in Australia. I did my undergraduate study in jazz drumming in Sydney in the early 2000s before doing a master's degree in international relations at Sydney University. And then I moved um, up to University of Queensland to do my PhD in 2006 under the exceptionally insightful and generous supervision of Alex Bellamy and Richard Devtak. And I began that PhD, I think, planning to work on the recent history of humanitarian intervention, focusing mainly on the 1990s, but my supervisors gently pushed me toward a more ambitious project, I think, and I'll be forever grateful to them for this. So the PhD ended up being a 500-year-long history of sovereignty. And so just to provide a a bit of context for that, within the discipline of international relations, or IR, at the time, the prevailing idea was that prior to really the 1990s, state sovereignty had always entailed an absence of accountability. So states, until the 90s, it was thought, had the right to treat their own people as they wished, free from outside interference or intervention. And this idea was that uh, such an understanding of sovereignty had only recently been brought into question with notions of sovereignty as responsibility that certain scholars and practitioners were advancing with the well-known 90s examples of humanitarian intervention and, of course, with the articulation of the principle of the responsibility to protect by an international commission in 2001. And Stephen Krasner had written a book on sovereignty in 1999, I think it was, that partially addressed this mythical history of sovereignty. He demonstrated that this non-interventionist understanding of sovereignty had been repeatedly breached and compromised in various ways, various reasons, over several centuries. But it seemed to me that Krasner took for granted that even if this non-interventionist and unaccountable vision of sovereignty was commonly violated, actors had always considered this vision to be the unchanging default meaning of sovereignty. And so for my PhD thesis, which later became my first book, Sovereignty and the Responsibility to Protect, I challenged this myth about sovereignty in, I I think, a more fundamental way, arguing that, in fact, Sovereignty had long been understood to entail responsibilities for the protection of the safety of one's own population, and these responsibilities had long been understood to be internationally enforceable, 
as was demonstrated by examples of intervention in sovereign affairs in Europe to put an end to tyranny and persecution from as early as the 16th century. And so that was my first book project, this study of the long history of enforceable responsibilities of states for the protection of their own populations and contemplating what this revised history should mean for our thinking about the ethics and the politics of sovereign responsibilities today. By the time I'd finished that book project, I'd become aware that I was only telling part of the story of international responsibility. And really, I think I was telling only the more straightforward and perhaps the uncontestable part of the story, which was the story about the responsibilities of sovereigns for their own populations. And I began wondering, well, what about the responsibilities of sovereigns for the protection of foreigners beyond their borders? So there was wonderful work being done and is still being done on the histories of humanitarian intervention and human protection by international relations scholars, by historians. And I've learned a whole lot from these wonderful histories. But to my mind, many of these histories have often contributed to the persistence of or at least they haven't really addressed a different myth, which is that while, while these histories acknowledge that ideas of intervention and international human protection have long histories, they tend to um, proceed on the assumption and sometimes explicitly say that states until recently conceived merely of a right to protect distant vulnerable people. They weren't, states weren't thought to be burdened by any obligation to care for strangers when they didn't want to, again, until recently, until the 1990s, until, until the emergence of principles like R2P. But I'd repeatedly come across evidence that this was also a myth. And so for much of the past 500 years, I think when they've been justifying action to protect people beyond borders or when they've been exhorting others to act, states have almost always deployed the language of responsibility. And so I came to realise that I wanted to write another book, a book about the history and in turn about the present and the future of this responsibility to protect not one's own population, but populations beyond one's borders. And so that's what became this more recent book, Sharing Responsibility. In terms of uh, who's influenced me, so people like Krasner and people like these um, wonderful historians of human protection and Humanitarian intervention have influenced me greatly. I think probably the first book that I read cover to cover on these kinds of questions was Nick Wheeler's amazing study of 20th century humanitarian intervention, Saving Strangers. I think so much of my understanding of that period um, and these historical interventions is indebted to his work. And I think I've also taken a lot from his English school constructivist kind of method of understanding and interpreting prevailing international norms by looking at how states, when justifying or condemning certain actions, appeal to certain shared understandings. That's driven a whole lot of my uh, means of doing empirical work over the years. Martha Finnamore, too, her empirical analysis has influenced me a lot. My two supervisors, Alex Bellamy, Richard Devtak, mm. uh, have been enormously influential. Alex, in shaping my understanding of international politics and how it relates to questions of international ethics. Richard, especially in pushing me toward a more contextualist approach to understanding histories related to human protection. And probably, and finally, I think 
I'm learning, just in recent years, I'm, I find I'm learning a lot from certain post-colonial critics of intervention and R2P who, to be honest, I probably ignored for far too long. So scholars like Jessica White, Adam Gerichu, Anne Orford, who among many of their contributions particularly emphasise how international actors are rarely innocent bystanders who are suddenly compelled to act in response to domestic protection crises, such as outbreaks of mass atrocities. Rather, these states are commonly already entangled in, often even complicit in, the emergence of these crises, and that compels us to think much harder about the nature of international responsibilities and the po- politics and the ethics of intervention. Sorry, that was a fairly long-winded answer to a, a nice open <laughs> question. <laughs> That's all right. Thanks, Luke. Um, you know, I, I was just going to mention. You know, I, I believe it was. I believe it's called "Reading Humanitarian Intervention." Uh, Anne Orford's book was mm. when I was doing my doctoral studies. I took a class on international human rights law. Um, and I happened to come across, uh, you know, uh, Orford's book and, um, yeah, definitely influenced some of my thinking on, uh, the same things that you were talking about there, the role, um, that external actors have in humanitarian crises and in other states. You also touched on uh, a number of things in your, uh, your sort of introduction there, um, that I wanted to talk about, but before we get to that, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say jazz drummer? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, in the, uh, yeah. do you still drum, and how did you go from that, like uh, uh, something you know, a humanities like that in art, uh, into uh, international, you know, politics, in humanitarian mm. intervention, and so on? Yeah, I still, I still drum much less now than I used to. I'm doing some soul drumming last night. Um, nice. <laughs> and how did I shift from that to international relations? I think it was um, just the thought that I might not want to be a full-time drummer forever so it might be worth doing some further study to have another career option so I went (laughs) off and did a master's of international relations and just fell in love with it and I often say that I think there's a lot of similarities between being a musician and being an academic just the uh that stamina that you have to build up for doing your own practice or your own research Mm -hmm. um that sense in which to some degree at least uh you get to control the direction of uh you get to follow your own interests and and pursue the things that you think are the most important. Uh, you get to kind of be your own boss, even though you're not really. Um, yeah, so it suits. <laughs> I think it suits the personality of a musician to go into academia a lot of the time. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I did a little bit of, of NGO work um, earlier in life and uh, found that uh, being an academic did give me the, uh, the flexibility to as you said, sort of be my own boss, even if, even if I'm not technically my own yeah, boss. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So a couple of things that you, you mentioned in your introduction um, to one is, you know, this, this question of the understanding of, of sovereignty and um, you know, I really like books that challenge orthodoxy. Um, you know, I interviewed Dirk Moses not too long ago and he mm. raised questions about Raphael Lemkin and, and how the definition of genocide sort of evolved. Um, and you challenge, uh, you know, the, this Westphalian story about Westphalian sovereignty. And um, can you tell our listeners a bit about that history, um, what the Westphalian story is and, and why it's false? Yeah, so... I think scholars uh, for much of the last couple of decades who've been debating the merits of the responsibility to protect, R2P, 
have often built their arguments on a story about this, the Peace of Westphalia, which concluded the Thirty Years' War in Europe in 1648. And the story goes that the peace brought into being an international system of equal and sovereign states, each with an indefeasible right to govern itself as it wished. And so in the hands of critics of R2P, they express concern that this Westphalian system, which for them for so long supposedly enabled peoples to pursue their respective conceptions of the good life, free from external interference, this system is today being undone by a new and specious principle of intervention, they say. And meanwhile, supporters of R2P celebrate that this Westphalian system, which to their minds for more than three centuries provided a shield for tyranny, they worry that this, oh, they celebrate that this is today being undone by a new and welcome principle of human protection. But this Westphalian story is entirely false, and I'm certainly not the first to say this. Stephen Krasner, who I mentioned earlier in the early 90s, demonstrated this, uh, and numerous other historians and IR scholars have been saying this for two or three decades now, demonstrating that the Peace of Westphalia didn't inaugurate an in a non-interventionist system of equal and sovereign states. Rather, the negotiators of the peace, A, embraced a variety of forms of political community, and B, um, included provisions for legitimate intervention in some of them. And so, like, for example, a close look at the provisions of the treaties and their use by actors after 1648 shows that the peace represents a fairly crucial early instance of the construction of international responsibilities for the protection of the vulnerable. And so in my earlier book on sovereignty, I explained that the Peace of Westphalia imposed duties on the rulers of the German princely states for the care of their subjects and a right of other contracting parties to intervene in response to violations of these duties following work of people like uh, Brendan Sims. In my new book, Sharing Responsibility, I take it a step further and argue that the peace actually imposed a responsibility, an obligation on the contracting parties to ensure that the German rulers discharged their duties and certain states acknowledged and acted on this international responsibility, using it to justify their interventions or using it to urge others to act in response to particular cases of tyranny and especially religious persecution. I follow the work of people like Patrick Milton, in making that argument. And as such, the Peace of Westphalia represents an early example of, I think, the international codification of a responsibility to protect foreigners beyond one's territory. Thanks, Luke. And that leads to, uh, you know, the next question, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, and, and I have a, you know, I have a quote from your book, but you mentioned earlier that, um, states often deploy the language of responsibility. Um, so it says specifically, quote, when justifying action taken to protect people beyond borders or when exhorting others to act, states have almost always deployed the language of responsibility, of duty, of obligation, of an imperative to love their neighbor, to uphold justice, and to defend the interests of humanity. Uh, in practice, uh, is this typically, do you think this is typically what motivates uh, states to act? Is it, is it this moral, noble calling um, or is it political interests that uh, are the primary motivators? And, um, you know, I, I 
think it was James Patterson. It's been a while since I've read his book, but he actually, if I'm correct and have this accurately, uh, mm-hmm. says that ulterior motives aren't necessarily a bad thing because a state that has a vested interest is more likely to stick out the humanitarian intervention uh, and ultimately uh, protect the population, even if there's something else going on there. Yeah, right. So I think, well, it varies from case to case, and typically the motives of states intervening or otherwise um, acting to acting beyond their borders to help protect vulnerable populations tend to have mixed motives, and I think that mix matters a lot. I think I think that sometimes the presence of ulterior motives can produce a stronger motivation to involve oneself in responding to a human protection crisis. But I worry that, and we have plenty of examples of this, that it can also pervert the course of such involvement. We only need to think of how the presence of ulterior motives completely undermine the course of past wars and past interventions that were justified in languages of human protection. We can think of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, for example, which was partly justified as a response to Saddam's tyranny. And, of course, we could think of how fascist Italy justify the invasion of Ethiopia on the grounds of a need to suppress slavery, as Adam Gedichu has explained. We can think of how Nazi Germany justified the annexation of Austria, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, the invasion of Poland on grounds of an obligation to protect oppressed and mistreated German minorities. Now, the presence of mixed motives doesn't necessarily mean that an international effort to protect vulnerable people will do more harm than good. And I suspect that the presence of mixed motives in any intervention is perhaps inevitable, but it's something that I think we need to pay close attention to and seek to learn lessons from past examples. I find it fascinating to consider the contrasting narratives and the contrasting conclusions that were offered by a couple of scholars who must be about 10 years ago now, both produced histories of 19th century European interventions to protect Christian minorities in the Ottoman Empire. So we have Gary Bass's book. He emphasizes the power of moral sentiment, which stirred citizens, particularly in Britain and France, to pressure their leaders to alleviate suffering of fellow Christians. And these leaders, in turn, were moved to act, if not due to their own moral sensibilities, then at least because they were concerned for their own reputations. And so for Bass, this explains much of those 19th century humanitarian interventions. But meanwhile, David Rodonio, in his own book, insists that looking at the same cases, competition among the European great powers and the imperative of managing the balance of power between them was central to the story of when and where interventions took place, who intervened and how they conducted their intervention. So the stories we tell about the ethics of intervention, past and present, I think turns a lot on how we read and interpret such cases and what lessons we think we should draw from them. Thank you, Luke. And that um, you know, connects to a compliment I have on your book. I thought you handled this in a very uh, nuanced way. And I think sometimes we fall into, um, you know, there's a, there's a trap, I think, and maybe this is something that has emerged with uh, political rhetoric today. Um, but it seems like sometimes it's easy to either say, Intervention is always uh, imperialistic, self-interested, and maybe the flip side is it's always well-intended, even if it doesn't succeed in its, mm. you know, in the intentions um, 
behind it. Um, I think it's really important to be nuanced when we talk about uh, human protection. And I was, I was wondering if you can talk about that for a minute. I know that's not really a, a clear question, but sure, sure. Um, do, do you agree about Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something I've really I, that I've really wrestled with in the book, trying to say useful things about this mixed history and also the highly troubling nature of this history of human protection. So I don't think that international human protection efforts are always self-interested and imperialistic, but they clearly often are, and that fact alone is deeply disturbing. I think we have some examples of acts aimed at protecting vulnerable populations that are worth celebrating. We might point to the US intervention to forcibly rescue tens of thousands of Yazidis under attack from Islamic State, trapped on Mount Sinjar in Iraq in 2014, I think it was, as an example. We can point to quite a few successful cases of preventive diplomacy that were used to help prevent the escalation of atrocities in cases like Kenya in 2008, Guinea 2009, Kyrgyzstan 2010. And we can point to examples in which states uh, have provided refuge to civilians fleeing atrocities. We've seen this at least sporadically over the past decade in the context of the Syrian civil war. But there's absolutely no doubt that there's a long history of both well-intentioned and poorly-intentioned human protection efforts that have gone terribly wrong. From European projects of imperialist protection in the 19th century in which imperial powers repeatedly invoked the language of protection to legitimate interventions and conquests and the subjugation of non-European peoples, through to the disastrous aftermath of the 2011 intervention in Libya, which I tend to think is an example of an intervention that was reasonably well-intentioned, but which clearly ended up doing more harm than good. And so, yeah, I, I think it's I think we need to be nuanced in how we talk about these things. And so, for example, it's worth saying that R2P doesn't mirror past European imperial protectionist projects as straightforwardly as some people suggest, and the differences are significant. So whereas 19th century European norms of imperial rule, uh, or in contrast to those norms, R2P doesn't justify annexation or the extinguishment of sovereignty, or the subjection of peoples to foreign rule. And in contrast to 19th century agreements, such as that that concluded the Conference of Berlin in 1885, in which an exclusive club of imperial powers claimed a duty to protect and civilise those outside the club, R2P, on the other hand, was endorsed by all states at the UN World Summit in 2005. And so those differences are significant, and yet, I think we have to keep saying that the legacies of European imperialism and the hubris and the myopia that attended it clearly haunt R2P today in ways that should, at the very least, give pause to anyone contemplating the imposition of international protection measures for the sake of vulnerable people again today. Thanks. And, you know, when, when there's the heads of state in 2005, um, in the World Summit Outcomes, uh, World Summit Outcomes document, excuse me, mm. um, the, you know, the, the two articles on on R two P, you know, did talk about you know this recognition that um, there is a responsibility to protect, uh, specifically against uh, what we now call mass atrocity crimes, uh, genocide crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, um, 
It also talked about you know, the role of the Security Council and looking at it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, if we look at the R2P document, you know, it did talk about the Security Council being uh, still the primary authority and how the P5 shouldn't use their veto when their interests are not directly involved. And it makes me think of, you know, the Libya case, of course, was authorized by the Security mm. Council. And we can talk about that a little later. If we go back and look at Kosovo in 1999, wasn't authorized, but sort of was uh, retroactively legitimated. Um, you know, we, we use these terms like right, duty and obligation, among others. Mm. Um, but where does it stand um, today? If the Security Council does not authorize the use of force and it can't be justified under self-defense, where does the legitimacy or the permissibility of the use of force for human protection purposes stand? Yeah. Yeah. I I think I've got a pretty strong view on that question. And I've recognized that plenty of sensible people disagree. I tend to think though, and, and I kind of, from memory, I hint at this at various places in the book, but I perhaps don't Mm -hmm address it thoroughly, I tend to think that if a coercive action such as military intervention aimed at protecting a population from genocide or other atrocity crimes is illegal, that is, the the Security Council won't authorise it and the target state won't consent to it, I think states simply shouldn't pursue it. And I've got a few reasons for this. First, I think it's it's pretty clear that the solution to the problem of atrocities isn't more unauthorized interventions. I often, I often like to point out that despite all its faults and divisions, the Security Council hasn't once this century refused to authorize a non-consensual military intervention that has stood a credible chance of protecting civilians. And when they have, when states have intervened without authorization, illegally, under the guise of protecting people from tyranny and persecution, the results have either been disastrous for large numbers of civilians, such as in Iraq or Georgia or Crimea, or at best they've been uh, fairly inconsequential, uh, as in the US-led airstrikes in response to um, Syrian chemical weapons use in 2017, 2018. So they were consequential for those that suffered um, the effects of those strikes, but inconsequential in terms of the larger dynamics of the atrocities going on there. I think it's only one case this century in which the international community has been confronted with what has looked like a credible opportunity to save lives through non-consensual intervention. And that case was Libya in 2011. And in that case, as you say, the Security Council authorized the resort to force. And whatever the merits we might think of that decision, the intervention in Libya's failures, the failures of that intervention, I think make clear that the solution surely doesn't lie in further expanding the opportunities for resorting to force by encouraging or allowing states to intervene illegally. A second point I'd say is that given that those who are likely to intervene without Security Council authorization tend to often be the great powers, it's worth saying, I think, that there's something fundamentally problematic about the great powers who themselves led the way in establishing the primacy of the Security Council in the 1940s and who have been often quick to condemn and punish those who have intervened without council authorization in the decades since. Something problematic about them claiming a right occasionally to abandon the prohibition of unauthorized intervention themselves whenever they feel it necessary. I think states that write and enforce the law should be particularly bound to abide by it. And then 
Finally, and I think this is the argument that I'm most um, interested in and most passionate about at the moment, which is that the case for unauthorised intervention is particularly weak given that states in every instance could do more to protect vulnerable people without resorting to force if they wanted to. So James Patterson, who you mentioned earlier, he published a, a wonderful article last year about the enormous opportunity costs of military intervention, even when those interventions are legal, even in those cases where those interventions seem to work. I think if powerful states are so intent on protecting foreigners, as they always insist they are when they're defending unauthorized interventions, they're not going to lack opportunities to do so via other means. And one obvious mean means is, and they can do this with little risk of doing more harm than good, states could resettle more refugees fleeing atrocities. And I think the willingness of states to welcome vulnerable refugees into their own communities constitutes a very useful test of how sincere states really are about caring for strangers. Thank you, Luke. And, uh, you know, sticking maybe, I guess, with Libya for a moment, mm. um, you know, the the African Union, uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, and and South Africa at, on separate occasions and then maybe in one joint um, proposal had talked about, you know, a ceasefire and opening humanitarian corridors to, uh, to Egypt. And... Um, you know, these were rejected both by the rebels and NATO. And I, I just, it, it it makes me wonder, you know, if the commitment was to protecting civilians, even if, say, Gaddafi um, was not going to abide by the ceasefire, it didn't seem like there was ever a chance to like call his bluff and, and to try the, uh, the West's, um, you know, violent measures to um, protecting civilians in, in, in Benghazi. Um, I, I, is, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, was I reading that accurately? Yeah. Like, that's really interesting. I, I hear that argument a fair bit, and I think there's certainly something to it. To my mind, though, and, I'm, and I may have this wrong, but to my mind, what went wrong in Libya wasn't so much the intervention itself, or the way it was conducted, uh, I think there's. I think there were some valid reasons for um, pressing on with the intervention uh, rather than uh, returning to the table with Gaddafi, who was was I don't think to be trusted and not to be. Mm. I don't think there was much value in those those negoti- negotiations. Perhaps again, I may have this wrong, but I think the mis- the mistake of the intervention was the failure the failure of the intervening powers to plan for the day after, as Obama put it. Mm -hmm. Um, As I say, I I think, I I tend to think the Libyan intervention is one that demonstrates the weight of the R2P norm quite clearly. Um, I think the US and others intervened militarily to, to genuinely seek to protect Libyan civilians in the absence of any clear material interest compelling them to do so. And Obama did so against the advice of some of his leading officials who warned that it went against the US's strategic interests. And But while it wasn't waged, I don't think, for self-interested or manipulative or abusive reasons, and at the time that it, was, that it began, it seemed to be a feasible and necessary means of, protect, of preventing atrocities, at least to me and to many others, the 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 great failure, the great tragedy, is that once Gaddafi was finally overthrown, 
Libya fell into chaos and that chaos impacted neighbouring states, fueling the civil war in Syria, in Mali. Civil war was renewed in Libya, which caused the deaths of thousands of civilians and the displacement of almost half a million more. We have the horrific uh, fueling of human trafficking networks that sent hundreds of thousands of refugees across the Mediterranean. Many have drowned in transit. Many more have been forcibly returned to horrors awaiting them in Libya. And so Obama him, himself says the intervention didn't work. Uh, but as I say, I, and, and I think Obama says this too, Obama is often quoted as saying, um, I forget the exact line, but something like uh, one of the greatest failures of his presidency was Libya. And really, if you look at the quote, he's saying it's the failure to plan for the day after was the greatest mistake that he made, not the intervention itself necessarily. But of course, saying that, I'm uncomfortable saying that because that failure to plan for the day after may just be in some sense inseparable from the intervention. And by that, I mean that this specific failure perhaps just represents another example of an avenue by which hubris and myopia corrupted an effort of powerful states to protect weaker outsiders. And so we might, if if I'm right in saying that the the main failure of Libya was this fail, failure to plan for the day after, to plan to rebuild Libya and its institutions after the intervention was over, we might hope to learn from those mistakes. We might hope to ensure that future interveners responsibly help to establish peace and rebuild the state once interventions are over. But I worry that to do to draw that conclusion would just set us up for another intervention in which powerful states would inadvertently discover one more new way to fail. And so you'll know from reading the book, Jeff, that I don't think I'm ready to give up entirely on the idea that in certain rare and tragic instances, the non-consensual resort to force may be a credible means of protecting civilians. But I've, I'm certainly getting close to that conclusion. And and I think, you know, you do a uh, a great job in your book of trying to, I don't know if, if rescue is the right word, save, um, make, you know, make progress on this. Um, you, you detail five principles to, to guide states in deciding uh, where to discharge, um, you know, their portion of the shared responsibility to protect. Um, and uh, I do see this as, you know, uh, you know, evidence that you're not giving up and you're actually, you know, you're seeking to find a way to make this work. And so could, can you talk about these five principles um, and how you identified them? Yeah, um, this might take a little bit of telling. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief enough. So the context of those five principles is this idea that I detail in the book. That's kind of, it's kind of the abstract theoretical framework that underpins the various historical, ethical, legal, political arguments that I make in the book, which is that the responsibility to protect, at least the aspect of the responsibility to protect that involves the extraterritorial obligation of states to protect people beyond their borders, that is an imperfect duty uh, in, in at least three different senses. So whereas, for example, the duty to not engage in practices of slavery or colonialism or apartheid, that's a perfect duty. It's Those practices are universally condemned and states tend to be fully capable of complying with those duties always in all instances. The responsibility to protect is imperfect because it entails a positive duty to 
uh, take action beyond one's borders to care for vulnerable uh, populations. And it's imperfect in one sense, uh, which is that the duty is imperfect because it's subject to the judgment of each state, which needs to weigh the costs and risks of extraterritorial protection against their duty to care for the needs of their own population. In a second sense, it's imperfect because this duty to ensure protection when a host state is unable or unwilling to provide it, it falls on no particular state. So there's no immediately identifiable state much of the time that is bound to act on this duty. And then there's a third sense of imperfection, which relates to these five principles you mentioned. And this sense of imperfection is that, and this this is one that hasn't been explored anywhere near enough, I think. It, it is that given that the international community will usually be confronted with not just one situation involving the threat or perpetration of atrocities, but multiple situations and multiple other global threats and crises and issues to which it could reasonably direct its attention and resources, then each state that seeks to discharge its global duties has freedom to choose who in particular they should protect or help or what issues they should be responding to and what measures they should be using. Um, I I may uh, mention a bit later that I'm I'm working on that particular idea more today with um, James Patterson, who we've mentioned a couple of times now. And so these five (laughs) principles are five principles that I offer to guide states thinking about that third sense of imperfection. That's a a sense of imperfection I get from Kant. The previous two are from earlier thinkers, Pufendorf and Vettel. So this Kantian sense of imperfection is how do we, how should states think about which among many crises or threats or opportunities to care for vulnerable people beyond their borders, which of those should they act on? Where should they direct their attention and resources? And so the first principle I offer and I offer five in order, not in terms of how weighty I think they necessarily are, but to order the minds of decision makers and to suggest a sequence in which decision makers might want to think through this issue of where to direct their attention and resources. So an opening principle is culpability. So if a state is confronted with multiple situations that they might address beyond their borders, but they're particularly culpable for the instability or suffering experienced in one of those situations, perhaps that state has a special responsibility to work to provide redress in that situation insofar as it can. The second principle is the principle of need. So I think it makes intuitive sense for states to give some priority to the protection of those beyond their borders who are in the greatest and most urgent need. Third is the principle of effectiveness. So as states coordinate with each other, as I think they really need to do, in order to address the multiplicity of crises and threats and global issues that they confront, states should give some priority to to deploying their own resources where they can be individually most effective. That will sometimes mean that they give substantial attention to the worst crisis, but not always. And this relates to the fourth principle, optimal coverage, which is that a state, I think, should give particular attention to the protection of vulnerable foreigners who would likely go unprotected if that particular state failed to act. And then the fifth principle, all else being equal, and I say in the book that all else will only very rarely be equal, but all else being equal, states can choose to expend their material resources and risk the physical and mental well-being of their citizens in protecting the vulnerable beyond their borders in situations where they have 
the greatest security and economic interests at stake, provided that they do not allow their national interests to com- to compromise the conduct of their protection effort. Thanks, Luke. And there's a, a number of things that uh, you know that sort of come from your five principles there. Um, you know, some might say uh, where a, a state um, uh, is, is, has some culpability that they're the wrong state to mm. um, to intervene. So if we think about uh, you know the, France's intervention in Rwanda as a, as a mm. you know, easy common example that um, you know our listeners probably are have some knowledge of, um, what do you what do you think about that? Um, is there are there some situations where a culpable state should not be um, or should not intervene in those scenarios or or seek to provide human protection? Yeah, I think that's certainly right. Um, I've seen one response to that critique, which I think is a useful response, which is that in those situations where it would be inappropriate, where it might be re-traumatizing to have a culpable state go into uh, restore stability to end atrocities, etc. Perhaps instead that state might uh, finance such an effort rather than go in itself. I think that's a useful suggestion. Another um, appropriate response that that state might take might be particularly to up its refugee intake in response to a particular crisis. Uh, that might be appropriate. But I think you're right. Often um, a, culpable, a culpable state will be the least uh, credible and least useful um, state to intervene or to to act internationally in response to a crisis, and perhaps then it should shift its attention and resources to other places where it can be more effective and more of more use. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, and and thank you for reminding me, uh, you know, of you know the. the ability of some states to accept uh more refugees it's i'm still i still find myself falling into the trap when we talk about human protection my mind like immediately goes to military intervention Um, and i think that's something that uh when people think about r2p oftentimes they're immediately thinking uh Mm. that about the military intervention aspect and not some of the other uh ways that states can can protect um you know humans beyond their borders so uh, I think that's uh, right. yeah, it's important to to remind myself and our audience of that. Um, are there any situations of need right now that you think are not being attended to? Um, that really, uh, you know, there's po- populations that are in desperate need of of human protection. To be honest, it's it's not something that I'm currently following closely enough to perhaps say mm-hmm. particularly useful things. Certainly, um, the crisis in Ethiopia. Uh, is one that demands a whole lot of attention. And I know of other scholars doing excellent work trying to think through what the international community can usefully do there. The the, the vulnerability and the suffering of displaced Rohingya is still a um, very difficult situation that demands attention. Same with Syria, same with Yemen. Um, again, as you were just saying, I, I tend to think especially in response to those particularly thorny crises, thorny crises where it's difficult to work out what usefully what useful response the international community can offer in stopping um, certain cases of atrocities, there's always the opportunity to uh, provide humanitarian assistance and to provide refuge to those who have fleed 
the atrocities or those who have been forcibly displaced by those atrocities. Um, and so, as I say, I don't think I'm paying close enough attention to several of these crises to offer much of use about um, particular moves that the Security Council should be making or that states should be making to bring to an end those atrocities. But there's always an opportunity for states, particularly those states who are who are wanting to do more, to welcome into their own communities larger, much larger numbers of refugees fleeing or displaced by those atrocities. Yeah, thanks, Luke. And um, you know, another potential, I guess, critique um, of one of the five principles, and and you do address this in your book, uh, is is this critique of um, you know, sort of the selective application and selective human protection. Um, and you, you know, when you talked about how um, you know states would you know could choose when, where. Um, and who to protect based on a number of different variables. Uh, I think one part of me thinks, well, is that going to add even greater selectivity? But then I also think that your principles could lead to wider coverage. Uh, So even if states are being selective, they're being selective for particular reasons. But if all states are are choosing to Mm -hmm. sort of be upstanders in their responsibility to protect or shared responsibility to protect that it actually could lead to wider coverage. Um, Any, any thoughts on, on the, this, the debate about selectivity? Yeah, I think you put it well. I think, I think this, (laughs) this charge of selectivity is often misplaced. So I think that often the charge made is that action in one place is unjust because the state failed to act elsewhere, even if action elsewhere was simply never likely to succeed. I think that kind of critique is a useless critique. And so we need to be clear that certain international protection activities are possible in some cases, but not others. And so that's not to say, for example, that there's... That's not to say there's nothing that the international community should be doing in response to China's persecution of the Uyghurs, for example, but that response is going to have to look necessarily and appropriately is going to have to look different to a response to atrocities elsewhere in which, for example, the state consents to international peacekeepers. And so I think a lot of the time I'm I'm sceptical of the usefulness of this charge of selectivity. But at the same time, I don't think we want to dismiss it too quickly because it often points to a real concern which is that powerful states tend to give priority to addressing atrocity threats in situations where they have the most at stake uh, rather than necessarily in situations in which they can most effectively alleviate suffering. And that's ethically problematic. It's also politically problematic insofar as it undermines whatever international consensus there might be on human protection. And so that's why um, that's that's the the uh, motivation for the five principles that I offer. So it becomes an issue of prioritization. And this issue of prioritization is one that I'm presently exploring in work with James Patterson. Um, yeah. Thanks, Luke. And, um, you know, you also, I, I want to shift just a little bit here. Um, you know, in, in your book, you talk about uh, some of the multiple forces that are affecting human protection beyond borders uh, today. Uh, these include rising populist nationalism in many Western states, increasing weariness of Western hypocrisy and the emboldening of other states, and rising confidence of non-Western powers. Can you talk about each of these and how they impact human protection beyond borders? 
and how they can be overcome? Yeah, sure. How they can be overcome is a tricky question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we have good reason to worry about each of these three trends. Um, so as you say, key Western states, not least the United States, which have in recent decades provided the impetus and accepted much of the burden for international protection efforts, often for worse, but sometimes for better. They've turned their backs on global responsibilities um, in recent years to some degree. And at the same time, and kind of, I think in response to that partly, the increasing weariness of Western hypocrisy has emboldened, emboldened other states, not least Russia, to resist whatever efforts the West does continue to manage to muster to prod and shame them into facilitating global protection efforts. And then the third is the rising confidence of key non-Western powers, not least China, which guided in part by humiliating memories of Western imperialism, increasingly resist Western approaches to protection and promote their own alternative, emaciated, I think, visions of international responsibilities. And so we see the impact of this in international responses to atrocities committed against the Rohingya in Myanmar. So just as Russia shields Syria, the United States shields, shields uh, Saudi Arabia, China shields Myanmar in the Security Council and in other forums. And, and Russia supports China on Myanmar, just as China has mostly supported Russia on Syria. And while the United States and some others have taken some measures to sanction perpetrators and aid victims um, among the Rohingya, the United States has lacked the appetite and I think it's, lacked, it's increasingly lacks the moral authority to cultivate a coalition of like-minded states to apply meaningful sustained pressure on Myanmar's leaders and their supporters to end the violence against minorities and to, for example, facilitate safe return of displaced Rohingya. You ask, how can these trends be overcome? <laughs> it's not an easy question to answer. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll say one thing that I explore in the book. I think we've become too reliant on tactics of shame I think we try to shame the great powers into acting in response to atrocities and that has worked at times in the past and it doesn't seem to work anywhere near as well today as it once did. In what seems to be our post-truth age, I think states are proving less susceptible than they once were to international efforts to shame them into complying with human protection norms. And this makes me wonder whether those championing these norms might find greater success in presenting compliance in more positive terms as a welcome opportunity to protect vulnerable people that states can and should embrace rather than an unwanted burden to be avoided. So perhaps we might be trying to inspire states to protect rather than constraining them to do so. And of course, this is easier said, to, said than done, but I think we have a few useful examples of this that we've seen in recent years of actors enticing reluctant states to embrace opportunities to comply with and to promote international norms related to human protection. There was a wonderful uh, couple of articles published in recent years on how NGOs have successfully enticed the United Kingdom to shift from being a spoiler to a champion of an international ban on cluster munitions, for example. Now, absolutely, it might be doubted that these tactics of 
enticement and encouragement, which aim to mobilize feelings of pride and pleasure rather than guilt and shame, it might be doubted that these kinds of tactics are, are going to lead a powerful state such as Russia to stop facilitating the perpetration of atrocities in Syria or the US and the UK to stop enabling Saudi-led coalition to commit atrocities in Yemen or to prompt China to stop shielding Myanmar from international condemnation. But I think these tactics at least offer perhaps an, a happy alternative to prevailing and I think increasingly unproductive tactics of shaming and trying to entrap states in past commitments that they don't have any intention of fulfilling. Thank you. Look, I, uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about the, the shaming thing other than, um, you know, the, how it has been used in the past, but, uh, mm. it seems anecdotally in, in my head anyway, that, uh, that it has, does, it has had less of a, um, a power or influence, um, you know, over state behavior, uh, generally speaking, um, mm. you know, we're, we're getting, uh, close to the end here of our time together. Mm. And, uh, you, you've mentioned Myanmar a, a few times, and I, I was really interested to see, uh, some discussion of the international court of justice in your book. And it's something that I've written about, um, and, um, continue to write about. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in what I think is maybe an optimistic view of the role the ICJ might be able to play in, in prevention of genocide and human protection. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm overly optimistic. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm curious about your take, but, um, you know, if we think about the, uh, you know, the importance of state responsibility for the commission of, uh, international crimes and aiding in the commission of such crimes. Um, you know, the, I was, I was a little disappointed in some of the, uh, decisions in the Bosnia versus Serbia case. Um, but now we also have this, the Gambia versus Myanmar case, and, mm. and it gives me some optimism about the universal interest of parties to the genocide convention and that the ICJ, uh, accepted jurisdiction saying that, you know, genocide is a crime that the entire international community has an interest in preventing. So any state party under Article 9, which gives the ICJ its authority to hear state responsibility cases, that it says the Gambia does have standing to bring a case against Myanmar, even though it has no direct interest, it's not in the same region of the world, and so on. Mm, mm. Um, so, you know, first, based on the ICJ's decision in Bosnia versus Serbia and what the court determined about the obligation to prevent genocide when a state has requisite influence over those likely to commit genocide, does the Security Council always have a legal responsibility to prevent genocide? And I don't know if shaming them would work here, but to prevent genocide based on their individual and collective influence over the other UN members. Um, and second, are you also optimistic about the role the ICJ might play? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I actually wrote a piece in Opinio Juris about some of these legal um, dimensions uh, last week with respect mainly to states rather than the Security Council. Maybe I'll start um, with states and then have some offer some thoughts about how that might apply to the council itself. So the argument in that short piece, and it's an argument that I spill out a bit more fully in the book, is that extraterritorial obligations for the prevention of genocide and other atrocity crimes have been more firmly established in international law in recent years than is commonly recognised. Um, and, and you're alluding to some of these um, 
clear ways in which the ICJ, for example, has established these obligations. In, in the Bosnia-Serbia case particularly, the ICJ goes so far as to say that any state with capacity to make any contribution to prevent genocide beyond its borders must employ all means reasonably available to them. This kind of legal development, um, this is from back in 2007, it's remarkable, but I think it and other related developments tend to be troublingly incoherent for a few different reasons. Perhaps the most interesting and, and important reason, to my mind, is to do with the fact that the ICJ's reasoning fails to grapple with a key imperfection of these kinds of extraterritorial duties, particularly the, the imperfection that I, that I draw from Kant, this idea that in, in every instance where a state does have an opportunity to contribute to an international effort to prevent atrocities, that state needs to weigh what they owe to potential victims of those crimes against not only what they owe to their own citizens, but also what they owe to other people at risk of atrocities or other forms of suffering or disadvantage elsewhere in the world due to global poverty or global pandemics or climate change. And so it's not enough to say, as the ICJ does, that a state needs to take all measures within its power to prevent atrocities, because that leaves unaddressed the question of to where states should allocate their attention and resources. It's hard to hold a state to account Hypothetically, it would be hard to hold a state to account for failing to commit resources to preventing atrocities if they've committed all their resources to responding to uh, global poverty elsewhere, for example. So it's hard to conceive how an answer to this kind of question could be made subject to law. How might that apply to the Security Council? I think it's I think it's it's also it's both more simple and more complex. So insofar as the Security Council's role with respect to atrocities is to comment on and to pass resolutions authorizing necessary action to prevent and respond to atrocities. The council largely avoids this problem of imperfection since the council is perfectly able to respond to one crisis while also responding to a range of other crises. But at the same time, I worry that we often tend to assume that it is obvious what the council ought to do or what it ought to authorize in a given situation where the fact is that in any case that is so complex that it demands the attention of the Security Council, it's going to be unlikely to admit of easy solutions and states will often be able to offer a reasonably credible argument against the efficacy of any particular action aimed at ending a crisis. No state, of course, no state justifies vetoing a resolution by arguing that they're in favour of atrocities. They argue that the resolution won't work or that it risks doing more harm than good. And to be fair, if we look at a case like Libya, we see that sometimes those who warn against a particular international action to protect civilians are proven to have had a credible case. So it's not at all clear to me how the law or the ICJ can help us with that kind of issue. Where the ICJ can be useful, I think, is with respect to the example uh, that you were offering, Gambia and Myanmar. The ICJ can be useful in taking small steps to hold to account states such as Myanmar who are themselves guilty of atrocities. And I think the case that the Gambia brought against Myanmar back in, I think, 2019 is a very good example of states trying to use the ICJ in useful ways. Thanks, Luke. Um, 
you know, there's a there's another conversation we could have at another time on uh, on the concept of state responsibility for uh, international crimes. Uh, I just mentioned this because my my next uh, my next interview um, there's a, a heavier focus on uh, in, individual criminal responsibility and it's individuals who you know commit crimes, not states. And so, um, but again, that's yeah, a, yeah. a whole other conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Luke, thank you so much for your time. Um, you know, before I do let you go, uh, you've alluded to this a couple of times, um, this work that you're doing with James Patterson. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what this is that you're working on? Is this hmm. a, is this a co-authored book? Uh, is it a article or uh, what, what else are you working on, including this? Yeah, it's a co-authored book. We, we've published a kind of a, a, uh, some kind of a gender-setting article in Ethics and International Affairs this year, which begins to explore the idea. But the, the book will be about the international ethics of prioritization. And so it, it builds on some of the thinking about imperfect duties that I do in the book we've been discussing today, as well as some brilliant thinking about opportunity costs and about ideal and non-ideal theory that James has been doing. And so we're asking questions such as, to which of many threats of atrocities that a state is faced with beyond its borders at a given time should it direct its attention and resources? And beyond that, should states prioritise responding to threats of atrocities at all or should they instead focus on responding to global health crises or global poverty or climate change? And what kinds of principles should guide these prioritisation decisions? I, um, if I can quickly mention one other book that should come out before that book is finished, it's a project I've been uh, that, that I've worked on with two wonderful translators and historians, David Luther and Maya Field Holmes, on a volume of translations of key works that led to the famous 1550-1551 debate at Valladolid in Spain between Las Casas and Sepulveda, and so our volume includes uh, translations of Sepulveda's defences of Spain's conquests in the Americas. These, these are two texts that helped to prompt the Valladolid debate. And then it includes translations of Las Casas's and Sepulveda's respective summaries of and responses to that famous debate. And, and we've, we're doing this volume particularly, or at least for me, Sepulveda's arguments are especially disturbing because a central argument of his defense of Spain's conquests is that Spain has a responsibility to protect innocent native American civilians from their tyrannical and oppressive native rulers. And so it's one of the clearest and most blunt and most disturbing historical arguments for a responsibility to protect that I know of. And that that volume should hopefully be published in the next year or so. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, sorry. Thanks for sharing that, Luke. Um, I don't know. Something happened with my words there. Um, <laughs> sure. But uh, yeah, if uh, yeah, maybe I can have you back on, uh, or maybe you and James when that. Do you have a general timeline for that? Uh, the first book, uh, or the well, the book with James. The book with James. Yeah. Uh, yeah, perhaps. I think we're hoping to have it wrapped up sometime in late twenty twenty two, perhaps twenty three. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. And so perhaps published a year or so after that. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know if we can plan that far ahead, right. but it'd be great to have the, have the two of you on. Uh, and thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate your time, Luke. Oh, thanks, Jeff. It was a wonderful opportunity to chat with you. Thanks.